And uh, if you have a Bible, please open it to Ephesians chapter 6. We enter this morning into our sixth and final chapter of Ephesians as we move along in the household code, this morning looking at spirit-filled, obedient children, spirit-filled, obedient children. The notes are in the bulletin, or if you're online there on our website, you can download them. We're going to look at just three verses this morning. And that they are significant and their importance can hardly be overestimated. I'd like to begin by reading them, and then we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into our study. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Lord God, I pray that you would help us to receive your word, that we would um, not stiffen our necks to it, but we would embrace it and see it as good. Lord, you care for us and you care for how we relate to one another. So as you order our relations to each other, uh, let us receive each of your words as life-giving, as good, as food for the soul. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll remind you of the context we're set in. Someone added the chapter division here, even though they're breaking up the code. A more fitting place might be in between verses 9 and 10, but be that as it may, we are in a prolonged discussion. If you remember uh, the, the outline handhold outline of Ephesians, first three chapters, doctrine, orthodoxy, last three chapters, application, orthopraxy. The first three chapters using indicative verbs. Paul tells us what is, what God has done. And then the last three chapters, how to live in light of that. Um, And then starting in chapter four, he progresses giving us corporate exhortations and instructions using the metaphor of walk. We saw five Walks, walk this way, not this way. Conduct your life this way. The final walk is to walk in wisdom, chapter 5, verse 15. And as he, using three sets of contrasts, not this, but this, that enters into the final contrast, verse 18, do not be drunk with wine, but that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then Paul gives us the accompanying actions, the conduct, the evidences being filled with the Spirit. Now, contrary to much popular opinion, being filled with the Spirit is not seen in flamboyant, over-the-top exercises. Being filled with the Spirit, according to verse 19 and 20 and 21 of chapter 5, is evidenced by addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In verse 21, then, the command of submission in the body becomes the hinge into the next section. In fact, the verb in verse 21, wives submit, really comes from verse 21. Verse 22, in other words, is here's your first example. Here's your first context. And so we don't want to separate these household instructions from the filling of the Spirit. This is important, otherwise we're going to end up with moral rules and moralism. 
as we've gone through Paul's God's command to wives to submit to their husbands. His command to husbands that they love, sanctify, serve, cherish their wives. This is all the main evidence of being filled with the Spirit. And so when we come to chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, what is the mark of a Spirit-filled child, son or daughter? It's this. It's this. This is the fundamental command that God gives to children. So I'd like to begin our study. We're going to look at three points. First, before we actually dive into the text itself, the context. The context. I think there are a few significant implications to draw simply from what Paul says and where he says it. Okay? Now, I've mentioned this before, but I think it's worth mentioning again. Point one. Children are assumed to be present in the assembly. Children are assumed to be present in the assembly. He, he's going through his letter. Paul would write this letter. He's in prison. They receive it. They gather together on a Lord's Day or some other day, and one of them would read it. And Paul's assuming in that context, when they gather together to hear a letter from the Apostle Paul, there are children present. Notice chapter 6, verse 1 does not have a parenthetical statement. Now go get the children from Children's Church and bring them up. Chapter 6, verse 1 does not begin. Now parents, make sure you tell your kids that. Or make sure the youth pastor teaches them that. Paul speaks directly to children. And that, that speaks to their standing, their dignity, the honor that they can have. They are here. Even as in each of these three pairings, wives to husbands, parents to children, slaves to masters, even as in each one of these pairings, there is a subordination. There is an authority and there is a submission. All six categories are spoken to directly they're together in the body they're one so is true here it may be helpful at times to break different groups off for age-appropriate instruction but it is equally healthy or more so that we gather as a body together children are present in the assembly both boys and girls have full access full access which is remarkable again if you remember the structure of the temple in Jerusalem, there was the court for the women and the children. There was the court for men. But here, men, women, and children are all gathered in the assembly of the firstborn. Now, there is Old Testament precedent for this, just not in the temple system itself. In Joshua chapter 8, verse 35, we read, There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Or in Second Chronicles 20, verse 13, Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord, their little ones, their wives, and their children. So there is Old Testament precedent for the entire people gathering to hear God's word. But in the approach to God, this is unprecedented. The temple made it clear that the wives, there's the court of the Gentiles. The women and children could get a little closer. The men could get a little closer. The priests could get into the holy place. And once a year, the high priest could enter the holy of holies. Here, slaves and masters, children and parents, husband and wives have equal standing. That also means something else. They are able to learn the entire, from the entire letter. They are able to learn from the entire letter. Paul's addressing them in chapter 6, assuming they haven't gone to sleep in chapter 3. Right? This is the end of the letter. 
So he's assuming they've been here and they've been profiting. Now, maybe they wouldn't be able to understand all the depths of what he's saying. But there is profitable material in all of Ephesians if Paul's assuming that they're here for the reading of this letter. Children can learn from this. And, and the Bible assumes that Scripture is profitable for children at all ages. Deuteronomy 31 Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. This is, this is Deuteronomy. Moses is gathering the people. They're going to read the law. And the assumption, not just the assumption, the statement is the men, the women, and the little ones, and the sojourner, when they hear God's word, will learn to fear the Lord your God. And be careful to do all the words of the law that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. So we, we live in a day with low expectation for kids. If it's not animated, if it's not touchscreen, if it's not a cartoon, they're going to get bored. The Bible assumes children are capable of profiting, benefiting, learning to fear the Lord from, get this, hearing God's word read. Remarkable. So that's one of the implications. And then point B, second implication, it is good for children to hear God's command to their parents. God's command to children is is pretty straightforward. Obey and honor. Act this one under authority. And yet, before they receive that command, they're they're in the assembly. They're hearing Paul tell the wives to submit to their husbands. They're hearing... The husbands be told to serve, sacrifice, cherish, and love their wives. And the implication is even though the children, you children are under the authority of your parents, we are all under authority. All of us have marching orders. We want to be careful that we don't teach or learn that it's only good to be on top of authority structures and it's terrible to be under it. No, the children here first, mom gets instructions, then dad gets instructions, now I get instructions. And guess what, parents? Your children heard your instructions too. And so we want to be indicating that we're all under authority. If you're going to call your children to obey you, be equally zealous to embrace God's commands for you. Make no mistake, they're watching. They are, in fact, watching. So those are the contextual observations I want to make. Um, Now let's just dive into it. From here on out, I'm going to make a commitment to speak to the children. Paul, I've highlighted, this is a big deal, is addressing children. And you remember the Jewish mind that the disciples didn't want to bring the kids to Jesus because children are, are weak. They don't have standing. They're not important. And Jesus says, no, bring them in. Well, here they are in the assembly, and Paul addresses them. So I'm going to resist the temptation to say, okay, parents, this is what you need to do. I'm going to spend this time talking to the children. Now, children can cover a broad age Uh, I I think we're dealing with anyone who's able to understand the words being spoken all the way up to anyone. um, Well, we looked at last week, the basis of leaving a family be married. So this could be anyone from two, three, four, all the way up to late teens, early 20s or older when I say children. Um, But primarily in the context here, we're we're dealing with children who are in the home, who are under the authority of the fathers, because verse 4, the reciprocal command, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So I think if there was going to get the bullseye of what age group, 
the central target is going to be on those children in the home under the discipleship and tutelage of their father. Although the command to honor your mother and father never ends. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for failing to keep it. So that's what I think we have in mind. So point two, moving forward, the command, the command itself. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. There it is. The fundamental command that God gives to children. We have lots of aspirations. And children, you have lots of aspirations, things you want to do, things you want to become, things you want to achieve. They can be good. This ought to be your first and primary goal, to be obedient to your parents. What does it mean to obey? Straightforwardly, to do what one is told, to carry out someone's orders. That's fundamentally what it means to obey. Now, I want to give three sub-explanations. If you're turning your Bible to 1 Samuel, there's no number in front of Samuel there. Um, there should be a 1. 1 Samuel 15, I want to draw some caveats because our culture really is ashamed of authority and consequently comes up with some really strange definitions of obedience. And I want to nip some of these in the bud. And the first is this. Partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. Here's a notable example from 1 Samuel 15. I'm sure you'll remember when the Lord told Saul to kill the Amalekites. If you look in chapter 15, verse 3, the command's very clear. Go, strike Amalek, and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. Total war. And so Saul goes, and he defeats them. But you read in verse 9, Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep and the oxen, and of the fattened calves and the lambs, and all that was good, they would not utterly destroy. So let me just pause here. We spared the king, some of the animals. Percentage-wise, how obedient was Saul? I'm going to guess he's up in the 90s. That would be my guess. And Saul certainly thinks that because he did most of what God told him to do, he's been obedient. In fact, jump down um, to uh, verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of God. That's his claim. And understand, he's done the vast majority of what God told him to do. Right? And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. I I did it for religion. I, I thought we'd offer some sacrifices. And Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, Are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Samuel said to Saul, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on 
uh, Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. So again, he insists, no, I did it. I obeyed. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek. I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Now, the reason you bring the king is he becomes your sort of trophy. We read elsewhere in the Bible of one king who had numerous other kings, their thumbs cut off so they couldn't hold swords, sitting around his table, and you'd show up to this king, and how great is this king when his household is made up of other former kings? So presumably Saul is doing this to promote his own honor and glory. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction, but the people t- took of the spoil, sheep and oxen. Then he starts blaming the people. I didn't do it. The people did it. The best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Then Samuel said, so to understand what's happened, Saul's mostly obedient. He insists twice he's been obedient. And the part that wasn't fully executed was done for good reasons, so we could worship God with a great sacrifice. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as is in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Make no mistake, partial obedience, when it's intentional. I'm not talking about when you're trying to fully obey God and because of your weakness, because of your sin, you don't fully obey him. I'm talking when you intentionally move the target. God said do X, I'm going to do most of X. When you intentionally partially obey you are completely disobeying you get no it's pass fail and it's fail there's no 90 percent. you either receive god's word and you obey or strive to obey or you rebel and it's the sin of divination which ironically or i think quite foreshadowingly is where saul ends up by the end of the book with the witch at endor so there's a lot more we could say here but make no mistake Children, partial obedience is complete disobedience. You've got, you got to set straight what God is calling you to. He's calling you to obey your parents, and partial obedience is disobedience. Next, delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. I'll try to pick up the pace of hair here. Psalm 119, verse 60 I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. James 4.17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. You know the right thing to do and you say, I'll get around to it later? Sin. And third, grumbling obedience is disobedience. Grumbling obedience is disobedience. Deuteronomy 28.47-48, listen to this. This is the Lord God rebuking the people of Israel. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. You didn't obey me with a good attitude. You didn't obey me with joy. So you will serve your enemies. So in my household, the way we keep these three points together is obedience is right away, all the way, all the way, and with a happy heart. And so, kids, this is what God is calling you to. 
Now, what can be challenging is perhaps this isn't what your parents are calling you to. What can be confusing is when you obey the third time you're told when they got to two and a half, and they treat that as obedience, you need to know God views that as rebellion. Do not be deceived. Do not lower your standards, even if those in authority over you would lower it. God says to you, obey. And God defines obedience as right away, all the way, with a happy heart. That's the command. And you will only be able to do this by the power of the Spirit. You'll only be able to do this as an outgrowth of the gospel. We dare not lower the standards of something we can do in our flesh. Okay, obey. That's the command. Who? Who do you obey? Your parents. Your parents. Now, again, note here the honor of both the mother and the father. You might be tempted to think back in, in Ephesians that because the wife was to obey, to submit to her husband, maybe it's just to obey fathers, but no, it's mother and father. Obey your parents. Now, it's not obey everybody, but it's your parents. Obey your parents, both mother and father. Get this honor. And then we get the confusing or tricky phrase, in the Lord. There's some debate over what this means. Some have suggested it means um, obey your parents who are in the Lord, as if Paul's only given instruction if you have Christian parents. And if your parent is not, if your child is not a Christian, if your parent is not a Christian, excuse me, then you're under no obligation. That's, that's not what's being said here. The phrase in the Lord, and here's your blank, modifies obey. Grammatically, it modifies obey. Obey in the Lord your parents, not parents. Obey, not parents. In the Lord modifies the verb obey. Which means then, your obedience to your parents is your obedience to God. And this helps when you've got parents who are hard to obey. We are sinful. The logic of Scripture is not your parents are so much greater than you that you need to listen to them. Your parents are so much wiser than you. You need to obey them. Hopefully they will be, but they certainly may not be. There's a living God If you call him your Lord, if you call yourself his child, he says he wants you to obey your parents. So in the Lord, obey them. Obey them as an act of worship. And and this again gets back to our goals. This is the fundamental thing God is calling on you to do. God is not first and foremost calling on you to be a missionary. He's not first and foremost calling on you to excel in academics. He's not first and foremost calling upon you to be a well-developed adult. His fundamental command to you is to obey your parents fully, immediately, with the right attitude. And then, after explaining in the Lord, making it clear that this is your act of worship to God, he adds this statement, for this is right. For this is right. Now, the, the phrase is put here for, I think, two reasons. It's setting up the citation in verse 2. He's going to show you its rightness by citing the Old Testament. But I want to just pause and acknowledge something here. Part of how you're going to do this with the right attitude is not to view this as a burden, to not view this as some curse, something you have to bear up underneath, some heavy weight. No, it is right The obligation of all children to obey their parents is right, holy, and good. The obligation of all children 
to obey their parents is right, holy, and good. And I say all children, and I'll use as my example, the son. The son. This is not something that simply exists due to the fall. This is not something that just exists this side of Genesis 3. Jesus Christ, the son of God, obeys his father. And his father gives him things to do. Remember we said last week that God created marriage so that he could teach us things about who he is. I believe he also created the parent-child relationship to show us things about the father and the son. So in John chapter 5, if you'll turn there briefly with me. John chapter 5, we'll look at 5 and then 17 briefly. Jesus makes some profound statements about his relationship to the father. John chapter 5, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. The Son looks to his Father, imitates what he sees his Father doing. He does not act on his own initiative. Turn to chapter 17. Jesus, what we call high priestly prayer, is often referred to. Before he prays for his disciples, he prays for himself. It's the night before the crucifixion. And let's take a look at this. Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come to glorify your Son. That son may be glorified in you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Before the incarnation, sometime in eternity past, the Father gave the Son work to do. It's fundamental to the relationship of father and son. It's inherent. So it is good. It is right. It is fitting. And if we could just wrap our heads around that, I think that attitude adjustment will help make doing it right away, all the way, and with a happy heart, much easier. Conversely, if you find within yourself a rebellious, I don't like being told what to do. I don't like having to obey my parents. You need to crucify that part of your heart. You need to recognize that part of your heart as ungodly, evil, and to show it no quarter. Don't emulate it in others. Don't admire others for their rebellious spirits. It is right. It's the way it should be. The children obey their parents. Now, if you're tempted to say, oh, sure, it's easy for Jesus. His father is perfect. I'll grant you that. What work did the father give the son to do? A perfect father might, it seems, tell his son to go die on a cross. See, before you write this off as easy because his father's sinless, the work the father gave the son to do was far greater, far more difficult than anything your parents or to call on you to do. It is right. I want to make one other point here as well. 
we need to stop being ashamed of authority. We need to stop being ashamed of being under it or being over it. This relationship, this obligation is right. It's good. It's righteous. It's fitting. Perhaps some of you children have a difficult time obeying your parents because they stopped giving you commands a long time ago and they asked you questions and said, do you want to do this or do you want to do this? Well, how do you obey? So perhaps the challenge for you might be even discerning what the will of your parents is that you might do it. But it is good. It is right. It is holy, this relationship. It is not simply a result of the fall. Okay, so there's the command given straightforward. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And then, point three, we move to the commandment. The commandment. Paul declares its rightness, and then he will support that, demonstrate that, by citing the fifth commandment. You can turn in your Bible to Exodus 20. We'll be spending a fair bit of time there. Um, Paul is citing from the, what's called the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments. Moses went up on the mountain. He came down with two tablets of stone that the Lord had graven on with his very finger. And he gave the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. And so he quotes, Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment of the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now notice here, the command to obey has been shifted for honor. I, I think the logic is this. Paul assumes connectedness. They're not the same thing. To honor means to show high regard, to reverence, to revere, to treat as weighty or serious. But I think the the direct connections are pretty obvious. What will you do when someone you view as weighty and important and serious tells you to do something? Even if you disagree, you'll think, well, they're more important than I am. They're wiser than I am. They're, They're greater than I am. You'll defer to them. This also shores up the backside of why grumbling obedience is disobedience. Because you're not honoring. You know that picture of I'm standing up on the inside. That's not obedience. That's not honoring. So Paul is assuming a fair amount of overlap between honor and obey. Otherwise, the logic doesn't work. So it's right to obey your parents. Why? Well, because in Exodus 20, it says children honor your mother and father. So let's, let's look at this in verse um, 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And notice Paul left off the last phrase about the land because, of course, we're not Israel. We're not promised a piece of land in the Middle East. Um, but he does quote the rest of it. Honor your mother and father, which means to show high regard. And then Paul goes ahead to make a point of this quotation. For him, it's very significant that this command is in the Decalogue and where it is in the Decalogue and how it's given in the Decalogue. And so we see this is the first commandment with a promise, and the blank there next to that is priority. Priority. Um, keep, keep your Bibles open, Exodus 20. First, I want to consider its position. Its position. Now, observers of the Ten Commandments have noticed that the first four commandments deal with how you relate directly to God. You don't have any other gods. You don't take his name lightly. You don't make anything that looks like him, and you honor his day. But then starting with the fifth commandment, the last six deal, you're still, it's your act of obedience to God, but now your obedience to God is seen in your relationship with other people. 
And so some people have called it the first table, the second table of the law. But here, the very first commandment dealing with how I relate to other people, ahead of murder, ahead of adultery, lying and stealing, is this. Notice the priority. You might be tempted to think, surely murder is of greater importance. The very first horizontal commandment, children, honor your mother and father. That's the commandment. So it's position has a great priority. The very first commandment dealing with your fellow man is to honor your father and mother. But Paul draws attention to an even more significant point, and that is this, the promise, the promise. Paul's an observant reader of Scripture. This is remarkable. I'm going to read through the other commandments. The other commandments do contain threats and warnings, but this is the first commandment that actually conveys a promise. Let's read. Chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I'm the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. No promise. You shall not take for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. That's a warning. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That's a threat. I am not going to forgive you. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do no work, but your seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourner who is in your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Here's a history lesson. We're reminded of the chronology of Genesis 1 and 2. Still no promise. And then we get to verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that it may, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. And Paul is saying, how important must this be that it is both the very first horizontal command given on the Ten Commandments and the only command that comes with a promise. You get the idea that God thinks this supremely important. Its placement, its priority, and its promise elevate this. This is no small matter. This is not something you can skip over and move on to other acts of obedience. This is fundamental, primary, central. Now stay here in Exodus because I want to look a little further. What exactly then is this promise that may go well with you? What God is promising is blessing and joy in your life. Blessing and joy in your life. Um, go well with you. The Greek in the New Testament is, a, is from the, the noun means happy or joyful or blessed. Now I'll give you the next blank and we can talk about this. Conversely, those who refuse to heed this command will have difficult and short lives. 
Now, this commandment doesn't here contain a threat. It contains a promise. But turn over to chapter 21. How, how big of a deal is this? How highly does the Lord regard the seriousness of the command to honor your father and mother? Look at Exodus 21, verse 15. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Verse 17. Whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. You raise your hand against your father or mother, capital offense. You swear at them, you curse at them, capital offense. Now, we're not the nation of Israel. We're not living under this law. But this law is good, righteous, and holy. And so we can certainly learn the priority of the seriousness We live in a culture where they're going to put rebellious, curse-mouthed, violent teenagers and young adults before you as role models, people to admire, posters for your wall. They'd be dead in the more righteous and holy civilization. That's the priority God places on this. Conversely, turn over to Proverbs chapter 2. There is a great promise, and it's picked up again and again in Scripture. Again and again and again. God is saying, I want to bless you. I want to... This is why this isn't a burden. This is why this isn't a heavy yoke. This is a good thing. God wants to bless you, sons and daughters. Proverbs chapter 2. If you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, My son, sorry, my son. So it's already cast in the form of a father addressing a son. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield for those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of the saints. Turn to chapter 3 of Proverbs. The appeal is made again. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. This pleading of parents, fathers with sons, listen to my words, heed my instruction. God wants to bless you. God offers blessing and life to you. And he gives one commandment. Obey, honor your mother and father. God promises blessing and joy in your life. Those who refuse will have difficult and short lives. They'll have difficult and short lives. Leviticus 20 verse 9 also picks up anyone who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. And so that's the standard in Israel. This wasn't something we joked at. This wasn't something that was snickered at. Or if it was, only by great fools. No, this is serious. And, and this is not something to be moved past so you're actually doing this. Um, forget about your academic studies. Forget about sports. Forget about music. Forget about 
get this, get life and blessing. If you get anything, that you may live long in the land, that you may live long in the land. Now, there's some discussion here over what the promise actually entails. Um, even amongst Pastor Daniel and myself, there's differing opinions. On the one hand, you've got the notion that this is a general truism. Children, generally, who can learn to obey their parents, are generally going to have successful, blessed lives. They're not going to get in trouble with the law. They're going to have good relationships with their employers. They're going, and God's going to bless them. And so, in general, they're going to live longer. They're going to live better. They're certainly not going to be put to death for cursing their parents. Now, the other viewpoint is that this blessing and life is ultimately fulfilled in eternal life. Ultimately fulfilled in the life that Jesus says he believes has life in him. Um, Now I think both are true in a sense. I tend to think, and here's your blank, this is at least my, my opinion here, that this primarily refers to the present temporal life. The, re- the reason I think that is its reference to land, which makes me think this is less likely about heaven, this is less likely to be fulfilled there. Now the response is, well, there's going to be land in the millennial kingdom. Certainly, that could be the case. Um, but, but I think the picture here, and this will sort of move into the eternal concept, and your second blank, your final blank I'll give you here is, Temporal life and relationships do indeed reflect eternity. Um, they do indeed reflect eternity. And what I'm getting at is this. Um, God gives children parents. Children, God's given you your parents, particularly your father, especially if your father's around, as your first introduction to learn something about him. And so the home sort of like a kindergarten, a training school for learning and preparing you to deal with your heavenly father. And in many places in scripture, that logic is made explicit. Listen to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know me. My people do not understand. What's the assumption? The assumption is, normally, children ought to obey their parents. And then God is saying, if, if donkeys know their masters, why don't my children obey me? You see, the obedience of parents is seen as the lesser thing. And of course, the logic reversed then is, if you can't wrap your heads around honoring and obeying your parents on earth, Good luck with obeying your Father in heaven. Or again in Malachi 1.6, a son honors his father. He just states it as if it's just assumed. Of course. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And again, the logic is from the greater to the lesser. If you give honor to earthly parents, how much more ought you to give it to God? Flip that around. If you can't even give honor to your earthly parents. And so how it goes in the home does reflect and picture and set up how it's going to go both in life. If if you can't learn to honor and obey people who love you, who made you, how are you going to deal with a boss who's a jerk? We see how people deal with 
police officers, the contempt they have for them now. How are you going to deal with your governing authorities in life? You're, you're going to have a hard life. You're going to have a hard go of it. If you can't learn to obey and honor the authority God has given you, who brought you into this world, who've cared for you, who've nurtured you, and yes, I know they're sinful, and yes, I know they're failing, but you're going to have a harder time, and you're going to find governmental authorities, employment authorities, police authorities, equally sinful, equally broken and flawed. The stakes just keep raising. Parents can't put you in jail. The government can. So learn this lesson. People who will not learn to obey their father. It wasn't tolerated in Israel. That wasn't a one strike first offense. We learned from Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21. At least in this case, there seemed to be some pattern. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and mother should take hold of him, bring him out to the elders of the city gate of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of the city, This is our son, stubborn, rebellious, he will not obey our voice, he is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So they shall purge the evil from their midst, and all of Israel will hear and fear. So you can imagine the alacrity, the zeal with which children in Israel learned to honor and obey their parents. You can also imagine the zeal with which the parents tried to raise them up. That, that's what we're getting ahead for next week. But, but I want to make it clear. You deceive yourself, children, if you think, I love God, yet my parents are jerks, so I don't obey them. You, you, how you're dealing with your heavenly father is seen in how you deal with your earthly mother and father. Make no mistake. God has no other work for you. Sacrifices he does not want more than he wants obedience. You want to go off and be a missionary. You want to go off and do great things for God. Honor and obey your parents. It's worthless. And do it in the power of his spirit. Do it as worship to him. Jesus obeyed his earthly parents. Luke 2.51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. This is, this is what God requires. And, and the temptation is for us to, to make this too small a thing. Our culture simply assumes children will rebel in their teenage years. Just assumes it. Of course they will. It's only natural. Understand if that was taking place in Israel, they wouldn't move on to adult years. It's not natural. You shouldn't assume it. Our culture is godless and broken. Don't take your cues from them. Don't make your role models them. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Pursue the blessing that God gives, the life that God gives, His pleasure. Following His standards, whatever your parents require of you, Understand God requires prompt, full, joyful obedience. You have the model of Jesus, your Savior, to follow. He obeys his Father, both his heavenly Father and his earthly parents. It may go well with you.